Welcome to Cooper Talk presented by Walk My Mind. Bring your body, bring your mind. This is Walk My Mind, a holistic approach to wellness that connects the dots of physical, mental, and emotional health. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm your host. I'm only as hip as my guest. And we have a, we have a great guest today. We have a gentleman who's has a new, a new band he's in, having an album come out. He's been in a legendary band. He's been in a few super groups. My guest is Mike Portnoy. How you doing, Mike? Good. How you doing, man? Good, good. So, uh, so... I got to talk to you about your drumming. You, you, you know, you're, you're, you're known as this amazing drummer, and you are an amazing drummer. Now, I read that you started drumming as a kid because your father had, you listened to a lot of albums your father had, or how did you start drumming? Wait a second. We're going to talk about my drumming? I thought this was Cooper talk. I thought we were going to talk about Twin Geeks. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's me. I'm Cooper. I thought this was a talk show. What's that? All right, I'll talk about drums. What the hell? You sure? We can talk about Twin Peaks. I didn't watch this year. Did you watch this year's Twin Peaks? Oh, my God. I didn't watch this year. I'm obsessed over it this year. Yeah. I've waited 25 years for it, and yeah, it was amazing. Now, what's you realize the... you, have the surname, you have the surname of our hero. I know. I know. I know. It's, I, I watched the originals years ago. My, my girlfriend's mom watches this one, and she's addicted to it. And it's funny is you have so much TV going on now. Cause I'm, I'm, are you a big TV guy? Big time, yeah. Okay, so, so what are some of the other shows? Are you watching any comedies? Are you watching episodes? Are you watching Dice? Are you watching Curb? Are you watching any of them? I'm watching Curve. I've watched episodes up until the season. I just haven't caught up on these final episodes yet, but uh, no pun intended. But yeah, I mean, Curve coming back is huge, and I love comedy, but I'm I'm really into the more dramatic stuff. I love Ray Donovan. I love Leftovers and Fargo and Better Call Saul, and and that's just the active stuff. I like uh, The Deuce on on HBO. I think that's pretty cool. Let me ask you something. But about Twin, Pe- Twin Peaks wins all. Okay, well, let me ask you something about The Leftovers. How did none of them get nominated for an Emmy? Because I'm going to tell you something. Oh, the, the acting, the acting in that last episode was just unbelievable, yeah. and such a great way to drop the series. I mean, just a good ending. Yeah. I mean, what what did you think of the acting in that? Oh, amazing! Especially uh, well, Carrie Carrie Coon, I think that's her name. Yeah, she's awesome. She was uh, simultaneously in that and Fargo as well, which were two of my two favorite two of my favorite shows this year, and she was amazing in both of them. But yeah, you know, the, the second to last episode where she actually got naked and went into the, you know, into the, the, the pod or whatever it was. Uh, I mean, yeah, that was unbelievable. And then the final episode, the, the two of them uh, were just incredible. It, that show was just criminally uh, overlooked and, and underrated. I think it was just too abstract and out there for, for a lot of people. Understandably so. It was pretty intense. Well, it's funny you mentioned Fargo because that's one of the shows. You know, I've watched every season, and the first season I was like, "Man, this is amazing!" I said, "They, they can't top it in the second season." And the next season, they bring it to the yep. same level. And the third, they brought it to the same level. What did you think of the ending of the season of Fargo? Oh, it was it was amazing. I love. I thought this third season was the best of the three, and I loved the first two. Um, it was amazing. I just uh, the, the acting and the the cinematography. It's like it's like you get like a it's like getting a Coen Brothers film every week. I grant that I know they're not hands-on directing it, but every every episode has that Coen Brothers tone to it, um, and it was just amazing. But watching Twin Peaks, you get it that you really do literally get a new David Lynch film every week for eighteen weeks. So that to me was was the icing on the cake, and you know maybe one of the greatest TV events of all time. 
I may t- I may go watch it on demand because you know my girlfriend and me have different TV tastes and you know we watch some of the same shows but a lot of times I get forced in the other room with the TV so I may I may take your word up on this and I'll watch Twin Peaks. Well, it's it, it's it's not for everyone. I mean, the way that the leftovers, like we were just saying, the leftovers is kind of an acquired taste. I mean, Twin Peaks is that extreme, you know. So yeah, it's definitely you have to have a certain mindset and um, a certain level of. Uh, what is it? Where you where you can relinquish all you know all of your expectations of, of having a, a a formal plot line? You know that you, if you're looking for answers, you're not going to get it. You know it's very much like leftovers are lost, uh, but times ten. You know you got to just have to enjoy the journey. Now, okay, quick question for you about. I want to talk about your career, but I want to talk. Well, about this your... really is Cooper talk. This is the interview I was thinking it was going to be. Yeah, exactly. No, no, no. It's true. We're supposed to talk about you and your career, but I want to talk about. Okay, are you are you are you up to date on Ray Ray Donovan? Are you caught up this season? Yeah. What are you yeah, thinking absolutely. so far? What the last two episodes were great. Okay, I I agree, but I thought it was a little slow. I was getting a little worried in the beginning, but I think it kicked it up a notch. I have no problem with slow. I can hang with slow. I dig slow. Uh, but the last two episodes, I mean. Uh, Two episodes ago was the whole episode. I don't, I don't want to give away spoilers, but it was the whole Abby episode. And that was heavy. I mean, that was real heavy, sad TV. And, and I'm not sure I understand, not sure I kind of believe that she would have done that to herself with him out of town. But, you know, I let that one go. But it was still incredibly heavy. And talk about Emmy nominations. I mean, she should get one for that. And then the last episode was more in the modern day, and it ended with, uh, you know, a certain twist that uh, will obviously set the tone for the the rest of the season in, in modern day. But I've loved it. I, I love that show. To me, it's kind of filling that Sopranos void in my life these days. Now, Curb, I liked it. I think most of my friends liked the first two episodes. Do you think it's kept at the same level? I just think that show will always be funny. I just think Larry David is so amazing. But what what's your take on Curb? Are you thinking, did it make you laugh? Were you sitting there going, I mean, when he said foist, I played that in words with friends yeah. that night, and I got 40 points. And I was like, oh, I didn't even know foist yeah. was a word. I thought he was making it up. And I put in foist, and it goes 40 <laughs> points. I go, holy crap. What did you think of it? I loved it. I, I, it. After the second episode, I got a text from my brother-in-law with two thumbs down, and I don't know. I, I disagree. I, I I love everything Larry does. Um, you know, I, I I think it's just great to have him back. I love all of those nuances and all of those. Th- you know, the, everything with Leon is is freaking classic. Everything with Jeff and his wife is, is amazing, and um, I just love it. And the stuff with Richard Lewis and the stuff with with Cheryl and and. Uh, and um, uh, uh, what's his name from uh, Cheers? Ted Danson. I mean, every one of those things. I loved every one of those scenes. So, you know, I'll take any Larry. Any Larry is better than no Larry. And, uh, you know, I, I even stayed with, with Seinfeld to the end. And granted, those last couple seasons of Seinfeld weren't as great. Although, actually, now that I think about it, uh, Larry David wasn't part of those last few seasons. So maybe that, maybe that was the problem. Now, but I just love having it back. I'm going to give you a suggestion. If you haven't watched Dice, do yourself a favor. It's only six episodes and seven episodes. I wasn't sure. I don't know if you're a Dice Clay fan. It doesn't make a difference. It's he's Well, a, I watched I watched the first season last year. I did. I haven't seen this season yet. It's but funny. I saw the whole first season. I enjoyed it. So check out the second season. You'll like it. So let's talk about you. We're here to talk about your wonderful <laughs> career. I, I, was only making, I was only making a joke when I said Cooper's Dog. I really didn't think we were going to go down this this uh, this 
side road, but believe me, I enjoy it because I'd rather talk about TV or movies or music than myself. <laughs> so that was fun. Thank you. No Thanks problem. for indulging me. I see. I, I love TV. It's, it's so funny. You know, I, I, I watch it a lot now. And I just, when you have cable and you have Netflix, you just, you're always watching stuff. Did you watch Glow? Did you watch the show Glow? On Netflix? No. Okay, you got to check that so out. I, Mark Maron's amazing on it. And it's it's basically... Oh, I love Mark Maron. Well, after I watched Glow, Netflix also has a documentary about the real Glow, the gorgeous ladies of wrestling. And it's amazing, the parallels. And it's one of those shows, you know, it's like when you, someone says, hey, why don't you watch this movie about a uh, wrestling, female wrestling? And I remember Glow, but I really don't watch it. You go, eh, and you watch it. Put that on your put that on your list. When you guys are on the road, when you're on wow. the road, put it on your, put it on your tablet and watch it on Netflix. It's, it's, I love Netflix stuff. I mean, I love, uh, obviously, House of Cards, and um, I, I just finished uh, Ozark, and I love the, you know, even the funny stuff like uh, Wet Hot American Summer. Um, you know, some of the Netflix stuff is amazing. I'm looking forward to the Dave Venture one that begins tomorrow. I'm really looking forward to that. What is it? So, yeah, I'll put that on my list. What did you say starts tomorrow? Uh, the new David Venture uh, Netflix show. I think it's Mindhunter or Mindhunter? Yeah, Mindhunter. A friend of mine. Yeah. A friend of mine's in that. And I'll just tell you something really funny before we talk about you. Uh, my friend got the call. He had to go to Pittsburgh. He thought it was going to be like, you know, a week shoot, you know. And Fincher is such a perfectionist that he does take after take after take. Finally, my buddy, his name's Peter Mernick. If you watch Seinfeld, he was the cop who was the detective who was yelling at Kramer when Kramer got arrested in L.A. Real tall guy. Uh -huh. And he said he was sitting there as an actor, and after like 20 takes, he's going, oh, I'm going to get fired. I must have done something wrong. He said, that's just the way Fincher worked. He said it took, he got, he thought he was going to go for a week. He ended up getting three weeks of work because Fincher is such a perfectionist. Wow. And I guarantee the show comes out really well. And I'm looking forward to that, man. And Stranger Things starts in Talk two tomorrow. weeks. Stranger Things starts in two yeah, weeks. Yeah, Stranger Things. Yeah. Yeah, Netflix is, is great, man. Between Netflix, HBO, Showtime, AMC, and FX, those are the five networks that are just quality after quality. And I, I, I just can't watch network TV anymore. I, I watch, I try to watch shows on, on any of the network shows, and they're just the quality is just so inferior to the rest of the stuff that's out there these days. I just I watch the Goldbergs because I grew up near Philadelphia. I grew up in a Jewish neighborhood. Yeah, I like it's the my age. It's, it's I think my Goldbergs age. Goldbergs are Modern Family. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I dig that. I just don't like the any of the uh, the dramatic stuff on network TV it just it just doesn't stand up I don't think so let's get to you <laughs> I love talking I could, I could talk <laughs> to you time's up I gotta go I, yeah I could talk to you all day about TV um, when now, when did you start playing drums when, when were you, was it a young age or, or how did you get into the drumming game that's right we were, uh, well you mentioned my dad in that first question and uh, it's definitely all due to him he was um, a huge rock and roll fan and literally from the day i was born he surrounded me with the beatles and the stones and you know uh all that late 60s early 70s music and uh, even in the early 70s he was a, a rock and roll dj on the radio um when i was around five years old he started doing that so i would go do the radio shows with him and pick out, pick out the records and stuff so uh you know, I was just inevitably going to become a musician just because I was such a, a music fan. And uh, I didn't really begin on the drums till I was about 11. I got my first drum set on my 11th birthday. And so you just, you started, did you really, did you catch, did you catch on, on a real quick or did it take a while? Or did, I mean, I believe you're self-taught. Yeah, it happened pretty 
quick and easy. I think um, I think I already had the musical, uh, you know, bug, and and uh, kind of nervous energy to me. You know, I was not. I wouldn't say nervous, more of a hyperactive energy to me. Uh, that that the drums, you know, was inevitable. But I think I just naturally had. Uh, the ability somehow it, it just came out on its own without much thought really so as you're, as you're playing you know as, as you're growing up when did you know that you were going to make this your profession I mean, were you in bands in high school or what was your trans you know what was your transgression to this i never made a conscious decision to do this professionally i'm still kind of waiting <laughs> i'm 50 years old now and it's not like i ever made a conscious decision to go professional. I kind of just loved what I did, loved playing drums, I loved music, I wanted to learn as much as I could about songwriting and arranging and theory and all that. So uh, I went to Berkeley and met, you know, two guys and we formed a band and that became the next 25 years of my life with Dream Theater. Um, but I never kind of said, well, you know what, I don't, I don't want to work a day job, I want to do this. And I, I kind of just followed my heart and and the rest kind of paved its way for me now dream theater when you guys started i mean how was it starting out you guys met each other in college were you sitting there did you decide to you know you just met it you met each other you hit it off did you decide to sit there and then say okay we're going to take this band did you know what direction you were going musically or were you just starting to jam together the musical direction kind of just happened naturally um the common bands for the three of us, the common ground was Rush. All three of us were huge Rush fans uh, back at that point in 1985. Uh, so that was kind of like the common ground that we began on. And from there, we started realizing that we also all loved Yes, and we all loved Iron Maiden. Uh, and then I would introduce those guys to the heavier stuff that was coming up, because I was a big thrash metal fan from Long Island. So I was already you know, really immersed in the metal scene. Those guys didn't really know that, but I kind of introduced them to that kind of music. Um, and, you know, we kind of just did what we did. We kind of put them all together in a melting pot, all of those styles and bands that we loved. And we wanted to write really progressive music, but with a heavy edge. And, you know, that was it, but it wasn't really a discussion. It wasn't some sort of master plan. It's just what naturally came out. Now, was it first of all? How did you name Dream Theater? I know originally I think you were called Majesty. How did how did you end up coming with Dream Theater? Uh, once again, it was my dad uh, that that made that suggestion. We were we had to change our name around three years into the band. We had already signed our first record deal, and the record was coming out with the artwork saying Majesty and everything. And then we found out we had to change the name, so we were scrambling to find a new name and. It took a while. It took uh, a couple months before my dad suggested Dream Theater, and we went with that. Now, was it easy for you to get a record deal? Because your sound was probably a little bit different than what was around at that time. How was how was the process of you getting a record deal? Was it when they saw you live, they came and got you, or what happened? Well, not only was what we were doing different, which would have made it hard enough to get a record deal, but we also weren't in a very active live band. So between us not really playing out much live and not really playing what was cool or fashionable, it's it's uh, it's shocking that we got a record deal. You know, to be honest, uh, it was just through my connections. I had, uh, you know, I was always very out there 
in terms of uh, making friends and going out on the scene and going to the clubs and dealing with the fan mail and sending demos out to different magazines around the world. And through my connections, um, we, we uh, you know, I had some friends in, in this band called the Crumb Suckers at the time uh, that were a New York hardcore band in the late 80s. And uh, they introduced me to uh, some of the guys that signed them um, at, who were just forming a new band called Mechanic Records. And then from there, uh, I started speaking to those people and then had them come down to uh, um, one of our rehearsals. So we didn't even get signed off of like playing live or anything. They just, you know, I sent them a couple of demos that we were making at the time and they came down to rehearsal and they signed us right off of that. So you go into the studio, you record an album, then does a record company tell you to go out live and were you guys prepared to go out live? Because as you said, you weren't a live band much before that. No, it's the opposite. We wanted to get out there on tour, and they, it, with that first album, never really made the, 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 the things, the, 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 the connections to really make a tour happen. So it's actually the opposite. We wanted to play live. We wanted to tour, and the label kind of held us back once we signed to deal with them. So that first album kind of came and went, and nothing happened. It wasn't until many, many years later with Images and Words, which was our second album, that, you know, that the, the doors flung open and then suddenly we hit the road and then, you know, the rest is history. What was it like hitting the road? I mean, when you're, you're anxious to do it, was it a great feeling? Because you guys were, you know, a tight band, I'm sure, by then. You're, you, have, you already have an album under your belt. You want to get out there. What kind of crowds were you drawing and what kind of gigs were you playing when you first started? Like when you started on that, on well, that Image and Words tour? Well, first of all, the album came out in July, and we didn't start touring until September or October. So even after the album came out and nothing happened, it was like, oh, man, is this, here we go again. You know, it's going to be another false start, false promises, and nothing happens. Finally, three or four months later, we just get in a van and go. We, we found a booking agent, just went and hit the road. And we were in a van for the first three months in America, um, just playing small, tiny little clubs, you know, sometimes. 50 people there maybe sometimes less sometimes more and then it pulled me under somehow connected with radio and somehow it just blew up over the course of a few weeks it went from being on the radio every day to being on MTV every day you know we went out and quickly shot a video and then suddenly the clubs were sold out every night and then next thing we knew we stepped up from a van to a bus and uh, it just happened and it was an amazing time and feeling because, um, you know, at that point, we were seven years into our career and hadn't done anything and had been struggling and struggling and struggling. We were on our third singer uh, and our second record deal and had had so many disappointments and false starts that when it finally started to happen seven years later, it was like a dream come true. It was like, wow, okay, we're finally getting, uh, you know, payback for all of our perseverance. Now, what do you think resonated with the listeners when people started hearing you on the radio when you started getting popular? What do you think they dug about your band? Well, I think at the time we were just so different from anything else that was popular. You know, uh, at that time it was the, the, the grunge scene was coming around and, uh, you know, that whole nine, early 90s sound. So uh, we were pretty much, I don't know, you know, we were, I think... I. Uh, 
relief to some people that liked this kind of music and were looking for something that had a little bit more to it. And with that, <laughs> I don't want to talk about Dream Theater anymore. I have I have so many other things in my life, and it's been seven years since I left the band. Okay. And this little trip down memory lane was very nice. But let's talk about where I am in, in 2017. Well, let's talk about the Sons of Apollo. Yes, thank you. Now you have a uh, Psychotic Sympathies coming out. And now, how did this band come about? And, you know... What? How did you guys meet each other? I know you were with Billy and the Winery Dogs. How did How did Sons of Apollo come about? And what is it like, you know, when you guys are dubbed a super group? Does that put a little pressure on you? You know, I don't think it has pressure anymore. I think, if anything, it, these days it kind of gives people a, um, I don't know, it gives them uh, some sort of... Um, expectation uh, of this being a one-off project because so many of these other super groups kind of come and go they'll do an album they won't tour and that's that and and really uh, i don't want people to get that impression with sons of apollo this isn't a project this is a real band you know the way that you and i just walked down memory lane with the beginning years of dream theater i mean that's where we are now at with sons of apollo except that every member of this band has been doing this for 20 or 25 or 30 years now, and we're all in our 50s and 60s. But other than that, the spirit and the drive and the passion is no different than, you know, the, the stories we were just talking about, uh, you know, a few minutes ago. Uh, it's just a different phase of our careers. But yeah, this is a real band, uh, and we have full intentions of getting out there and playing and touring and, you know, doing multiple albums. Uh, it's just a great chemistry, it's an incredibly strong unit. And in answer to your question, how did it come about? Um, myself and Derek Sherinian did a tour five years ago, along with Billy Sheehan and Tony McAlpine. And it was just all instrumental stuff, playing stuff from our careers. And at that point, Derek was kind of, uh, you know, er, you know, trying to talk me into turning it into a full-time band. It's just the timing wasn't good for me because I was just about to launch the Winery Dogs and I already had flying colors, and I already had adrenaline mob, so the timing wasn't right, but through the years, Derek keeps checking in with me, uh, trying to, to turn that into a full-time band, and anyway, long story short, five years later, here we are, we brought Bumblefoot and Jeff Scott Soto on board, and Sons of Apollo were, were born. Now, how do you guys, you're, you're all high-end professionals, so it must be great when you get together in the studio but because you're all so successful and you come from bands with different backgrounds i mean if you've worked together what is it like when you first started sitting down and creating your songs it was very comfortable for me i mean i had um existing relationships with pretty much everybody in the band you know i was in dream theater with derek and i'm in the winery dogs with billy and i had toured with metal allegiance with bumblefoot so realistically, when the four of us were in the room for the first time writing the music, you know, I was looking across at three other guys that I had already worked with in other bands. So for me, it was very comfortable. And I think, um, you know, I know Derek was immediately comfortable. I think Bumblefoot at first was uh, a little, I don't want to say intimidated, but a little, you know, panicked of how, you know, how it would work and if it would work. Uh, when it was just looking at on paper, you know, I don't know if he had ever done a collaborative writing process like this, but as soon as he strapped on the guitar and me and Derek got behind our instruments, we started jamming. It was like, 
we were long lost brothers and we had been doing this for years. It was immediately comfortable. So, so now when you go into the studio to put the album together, did you have a bunch of songs? Did you have a bunch of songs you guys wrote and decided to whittle it down to nine? Or how did you just, how did you build your material and see what would work? Well, we started with uh, some individual riffs and ideas that both Bumblefoot and Derek brought into the session. And I was kind of the guy that uh, kind of kept track of all those different riffs. And, and, you know, once we got into the studio, I would kind of suggest, let's do this and let's try this and let's put this one with that one and kind of play, you know, was the arranger in that sense. And once we started putting those things together, we'd start jamming on them and expanding on them and um, building off of them. And, you know, we would have a song done musically. And then at that point, we would track it. And then we'd move on to the next song, and then we would write that one, and then we would track it. And then by the time we, you know, were at 60 minutes worth of music, at that point, you know, we knew that we had our album. And at that point, we stopped the writing process and then just focused on, you know, the tracking. Now, is it easier for you as a drummer, because you've been around for a long time, can you just basically hear something and just go with it? I mean, is it something where when you do these songs, do you just catch into the groove like that? Yeah, but honestly, I don't catch into a groove. I, I'm usually sitting on the floor uh, with the other guys with a, a, a blackboard, and I'm the one that's writing out the parts and the riffs and, the, and arranging them and not even playing drums at that time. You know, the drums to me are second nature, and they come much later. To me, when we're writing, I'm concerned with the chord progressions and the riffs and the notes and the melodies and the arrangements, and that's what I'm kind of up front discussing and directing all the writing with, not even from behind drums. And then once all the music is in place, then I get behind the drums, and that just comes naturally. I don't even have to think about that. Now, how did you come up with the name Psychotic Symphony? It was a, a line from the song uh, Lost in Oblivion, and we were tracking the vocals with Jeff, and he sang that line, and I was like, oh, wow. That's a, that's a cool phrase. That would be a great album title. Uh, and it was as simple as that. Everybody thought it was a great album title when we went with it. Now, as I look at the, I'm, not, I'm on your website now, People's website, Sons of Apollo. Uh, the album cover itself looks great. And, you know, you said, you know, you used to listen to your dad's albums. I grew up as a guy who, I loved albums, you know, driving to the store, getting an album. It was the whole process of seeing the cover, hoping there's liner notes. When, how did you come up with a cover for this? Is, did you guys have certain ideas? Or did, you, did you get an artist? And did you want to make sure it looked good because you guys have been around for a while and you were part of when albums meant something? Yeah, I had a, a vision in my head, um, basically, of, of a classic crest, you know, the way that Queen had one, or, you know, you see other bands that have them. And um, so I went to the artist. That, that myself and the label had chosen to do the artwork and uh, went to him with the idea of a crest. And he came back to me with one which had two lions. And then I showed it to Derek to see what he thought. And he suggested, well, why don't we have one lion and one eagle? Uh, and then they would end up kind of representing me and him. Uh, and from there, I just worked with the artist and we continued to develop it. We utilized... Uh, Billy and Bumblefoot's double neck guitar and bass and kind of just, you know, went back and forth to create this classic looking crest, which will, you know, now kind of symbolize the band. Now, when you decided to put the tracks 
in order? How did, did you decide a certain pattern or was it for timing? How did, how do you decide that? Because as I said, once again, you used to be side one, side two, stuff like that. What is, what, what made you on the, the track tracking? I am completely, uh, anal and, and OCD when it comes to sequencing an album and pretty much every album I've done with every band I've done it with, I was the one that was always the sequencer. Uh, always. It's something that I'm very, very passionate about. And I spend a lot of time throughout the making of a record, you know, thinking about that. And uh, I pretty much had this album sequence before the record was even done. I, I pretty much knew it. it. It kind of wrote itself. I knew Gods of the Sun was the opener. I knew the instrumental uh, Opus Maximus was the closer. Um, it, it just wrote itself. And, you know, to me, when you're sequencing an album or writing a set list for a live show, which is another thing I always do, uh, you know, you want it to feel like you're watching a good movie or reading a good book. You want to start strong. You want to end strong. You want to have something in the, you know, something in the middle that's going to be pretty epic. Uh, you know, you want to have peaks and valleys. And, you know, the dynamic range needs to keep going up and down and have a nice flow to it. And it's something that's very, very important to me. And it's one of my most personal, um, you know, areas when it comes to making a record. So when you said you saw the sequencing when you when you first before the record was made, did you juggle it at all, or did you know exactly one through nine? Or I mean, you knew the beginning and opening. It's like anything, you know. We do something, we know what's going to begin and end, but we do drafts. Was there? Do you ever incorporate like drafts? Like, okay, maybe three will be six, or six will be three, or do you know like right off? It does it speak to you? With other albums, I've gone through drafts, and I'll make different playlists in my iTunes and try them out. Uh, but with with this album, I I literally had it from day one. You know, once all eight songs were written, and then there's one intro song, so it makes a total of nine. But essentially, it's eight band songs. After those eight songs were written, I looked at them, and it was like it wrote itself, and and I knew exactly what it was, and it really never shifted from that for this particular album. What do you think makes it so special? I mean, you know, so you said it's like a story, and we both were talking about TV. How you know you watch Ozark. You know, Ozark goes up, it comes down. You're not sure how it's going to end, but you're there for the ride. Do you think, do you ever bring your TV process and your love for like TV and movies? You said you compare them to movies, but what makes it a strong tracking? I mean, what makes it so special to you? Um, well, I think my love for movies and TV absolutely play into my OCD with an album sequence or a live set list. Uh, you know, I, I see so many comparisons between making an album and making a film. Uh, you know, like, you know, a, a, an album's producer is like a film's director. An album's engineer is like a film's cinematographer. An album's mixer is like a, a film's editor. Uh, you know, the musicians that play are like the actors in the film. The writers that write the music are like the, the writers that write a film or a movie or a TV show. So there's incredible um, similarities between the two processes. And because I'm such a film and TV fan, I think that's why I've always been uh, very active in every element of making a record. You know, beyond just playing the drums and being an actor, I'm also usually the producer and usually one of the co-writers and, you know, usually overseeing the mixing and, and the engineering. So I think that's a direct result of my love for movies and TV. But to answer to your question, what made this a good one uh, you know, you want to start strong and captivate people and hope, grab their attention. 
and then you want to start telling a story and go through different chapters. And, uh, and then, of course, you want to end with something that just leaves them, you know, breathtaking. So, uh, you know, it's similar to a movie or a, t- or a book. Now, because you love movies and TV, how throughout your career, how is that reflected into when you were in have made videos and been in videos? Do you want to be part of that, or do you sit there if you were in part of a video that you think isn't that great? Does do you say something to the director because you are very you know you said very hands on and you know what you want? Well, I I, I was the director uh, in Dream Theater. I was the one that always. Uh, directed the home videos and the live videos and um, uh, even a couple of the music videos at one point. So, yeah, my, my passion for film, uh, you know, had me directly hands-on directing all the Dream Theater things. Um, and I still do to a certain extent with other bands as well. You know, I, I'll oversee a lot of the live DVDs, the latest Winery Cooks live DVD that just came out. I was the creative director on that. And the, the new Sons of Apollo uh, music videos that we're putting out, I, I kind of uh, have final cut on all those with, with the directors we work with. Uh, so, yeah, I, 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 you know, I often get asked, because I'm such a film fan, would I ever want to make a film or score a film? And to be honest, I, I don't know if I... I mean, the challenge of that would be so immense. I, last night I just watched the HBO documentary on Steven Spielberg, which was incredible. But, you know, you see the challenges and, and, and the level of commitment that it takes for somebody to do that. Or I also just uh, heard an interview with David Lynch about the new Twin Peaks and how he, you know, the, the, the level of detail that goes into that. I don't know if I would ever be able to handle that for a film or, or full on, uh, you know, any kind of film experience. I think I'm happy just making music and putting my energies into that and then as far as film and tv goes i i just like being a fan i just like watching and analyzing and enjoying if you could direct a movie what actors what are some of the actors you would like to direct is there anyone you sit there and go man i would just love to direct that person well no because to me the the great actors are the ones that already have it you know a good director is going to need to get to get in there and make some pull something out of an actor or an actress but you know, to me, uh, the great ones are, are the ones that that have it and don't need that direction. Now, the album's done. So now, what are your plans now with with the, the Sons of Apollo? Because you guys all have different things going on. How do you sit there? Is there a game plan of when the next albums are going to come out? You're going to tour? or What is going through your guys' mind? Because you want it to be a good project. You're, both, you're all respectable. You played together with someone before. How does that work when you're when you have different projects going on? How do you focus on one well i mean i'm currently in six different bands right now uh it sounds like i'm making a joke but no that's that's actually the real answer um and you kind of have to be very strategic with how you schedule things um you know i know a lot of people have trouble just being in one band but uh personally i'm you know i'm very ocd and i'm very capable of managing and juggling my schedule uh in, in the in in the case of Sons of Apollo, basically all five of us have cleared 2018 to make this band our focus and priority. And you know we're going to be on the road all next year. We just hired a, a great manager that is going to work our asses off and work the label. 
So, uh, you know, we're taking this seriously. This isn't just a, you know, a, a one-off album that we just made for the fun of it. This is, you know, the new band in, in all five of our lives. And this is a new chapter for all five of us, and we're treating it as such. Now, the and one... not to say all the other things won't happen. You know, I'm very capable of doing other things while being in one main band. All that time I was in Dream Theater, I still did a lot of other things. So it'll be the same thing here. You know, Sons of Apollo will be the main thing, and then we can all do whatever we can squeeze in around it. Now, how did the Winery Dogs come about? Well, uh, the long the long version is that I was working with John Sykes uh, starting in 2011, right after I left Dream Theater. Um, and John and I were working together on some of his material, and I brought Billy Sheehan in to that. And long story short, after a few months of just waiting and waiting and waiting for John to you know, make a move and make a commitment to, to us making a move as a band. Uh, Billy and I just got tired of waiting and decided to just stick together and do something else. And at that point, um, Eddie Trunk, who's a, a, a friend of all of ours, uh, he recommended Richie, which was a brilliant suggestion. And that's how the Winery Dogs were born. Now, you said you have six bands going on right now. Name some of the other bands and how you guys got together. Uh, well, obviously, Sons of Apollo and Winer Dogs we just talked about. Uh, the other thing I have is, is Metal Allegiance, which is kind of my, um, my, my foot in the thrash metal world. And it's, it's, a, it's a, uh, a project that has uh, Alex Skolnick from Testament and David Ellison from Megadeth uh, are the two main guys with me, along with a guy named Mark Mengi. And we're pretty much the core four of that band and write all the songs. And we also work with, you know, the guys from Pantera and Exodus and Slayer and Anthrax. So that's kind of my uh, whole thing and second album right now. So those are three bands right there. And then the other three bands in my life are the three bands that I have with, with my dear friend Neil Morse. And Neil and I have three bands together. We have uh, Transatlantic, which I formed back in 99. So we're coming up on 20 years together. Uh, and then we also have Flying Colors, which is our band with Steve Morris, Dave LaRue, and Casey McPherson. And we, uh, we began work on our third album last year. Uh, we're still kind of in the writing stage for, for a follow-up with that. And then Neil and I also have the Neil Morse band, uh, which we just finished up, uh, you know, a, a lot of touring in 2017 and, uh, off of an album, which is, I think, one of the greatest of my entire catalog. Uh, and we will begin work on a new album in January, uh, you know, working around my Sons of Apollo schedule. So there's six right there. And uh, if you add Twisted Sister, that makes seven, but Twisted Sister is, you know, officially, uh, you know, done for now. So, or at least either for now or for good, who knows? That's balls in their court. But if they are ever reactivated, then that would make seven. Now, how do you keep your mind focused? I mean, you said you have ADD and you're like, but how do you keep your mind focused on that? You're playing all different kinds of music. Do you wake up one day and say, I'm in the mood to play this music? Or do you, I mean, how do you put a different hat on for different types of music? Because as you said, most people have a hard time being in one band. Most people have a hard time playing one kind of music. But when you're doing all this, how do you, how do you do that? How do you get it done? I'm a music fan and a music lover. It's second nature. I don't have to think about it. I'm a workaholic, and I just, you know, I, I love working, and I can't stop. 
Dream Theater, it wasn't like, uh, you know, a lot of people were like, you know, I left Dream Theater because I needed a break. And they misinterpreted misinterpreted that. I needed a break from those guys and that music and that, you know, endless cycle. But I didn't want to break from music. I think people misunderstood that. I'm the last person on earth that's going to take a break from music. I'm the biggest workaholic you're going to ever meet. So for me, this isn't a conscious thing that I have to think about and wake up and what am I going to do today? These things just some, somehow naturally come into my life. And from there, I, I embrace it and I work my ass off for it, each and every one of them. Now, how do you keep in shape? Because drumming must be such a physical, like people don't think, you know, people always sit there and go, you know, you, you watch a drummer and it's, it's, it's hard work. I mean, as we get older, you know, it's like, you know how it is, you, you get older and you, you know, playing hoops isn't as easy as it used to be. How do you keep yourself in shape to drum and keep the top of your game? Because you are considered one of the greats of all time. Well, to be honest, I'm really not that good at um, taking care of myself. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty bad in that respect. I don't eat very well. I eat a lot of crap junk food, fast food. and I don't exercise. Uh, at least these days I don't. When I was with Avenged Sevenfold, I was in really good shape because I had to keep up with those guys. Uh, so I, I was in really good shape when I was with them. But since then, you know, I'm kind of just a typical 50-year-old man. Um, so, yeah, I, I can't really give advice on how to stay in good shape because I could use that advice myself. But as far as drumming, drumming I don't have to think about. That just happens. That's no problem for me. You know, I could get up there and play a three-hour show with, without even thinking twice about it. But if you ask me to jog around the block, then, <laughs> then I might have a problem. Now, how have you seen the music industry change through the years? And like with the new Sons of Apollo album, how are you going to get it out there? I mean, because are you going to depend on, you know, because you guys are all big on social media. You all have your followings. So coming together, you have right there the massive numbers that you need. But how has the music industry changed since your early days to now and the whole process of getting an album out there? Yeah, it's... it's uh completely different it's a whole other world right now um and as you mentioned we have the benefit of our individual names and existing fan bases and to be honest with you that's how we're doing it that's how we're able to do it you know all the bands i've named to you i've had to start from scratch pretty much for each and every one of them and luckily i have this incredible fan base and support system that's out there and allows me to do this I have a million and a half people on my Facebook page that when I have a new project or a new band or a new album or tour, you know, I could make them aware of it through that. Um, and at the end of the day, that's how I'm able to do it and succeed and, and function in 2017. If I was a, uh, an 18-year-old kid putting together a band like Sons of Apollo with, with five guys with no names and we were just five musicians the way we were when we formed Dream Theater and, you know, 32 years ago, I don't, you know, I can't imagine how hard it would be to somehow make a splash in 2017. Uh, yes, on one hand, you have these tools that I didn't have as a kid. You know, you have the internet so you can put your music on YouTube or on your around the world on your own. So yeah, you do have the benefit of that, but the business itself is is so horrible in terms of you know being able to make a living or sell any physical CDs or sell concert tickets. If you don't have a name or something behind you, it's hard. 
And in answer to your question, you know, I, I'm able to do it because I am who I am, and I'm 50 years old, and I have 30 years of experience in this business with this fan base that now, luckily, uh, supports me. So I thank them for me being able to do what I get to do. Now, you said you got in 18, uh, 2018, you guys are going to go on the road. Now, what will you play when you go on the road? Because you have the one album. Are you going to be bring, writing new music to take on the road with you? Or how does that work? Or do you play some of your other stuff? Like maybe play some winery dogs? Or how is that going to work when people see you in concert? And how will you handle that as putting the set list together? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a problem that every band with only one album faces. Um, and I've had it through the years with Flying Colors and Winery Dogs, you know, on, on our first album tours. So in those cases, and as what we'll do with Sons of Apollo, we'll fill out the set with maybe some covers or maybe some things from some of our other bands from the past. Uh, you know, everybody in this band likes to solo, so, you know, inevitably Billy will have a, an extended bass solo and Derek will have an extended keyboard solo. So I don't think it'll be a problem filling out the set. Um, you know, I already pretty much have in my mind what I'd like to do. And, uh, you know, I think that will be kind of how we how we tour for the first album. And then, you know, once you have a second album out, then you could just stick to all your own stuff. That's the way it was for Flying Colors. That's the way it was for the Winery Dogs. And I look forward to that down the road with Sons of Apollo. Now, where are some of your favorite places to play? You probably, you've seen the world. Who do you think are the most... Uh, crowds that are just insane and I mean where are some great places that you've personally enjoyed playing the most insane audiences hands down are down in South America uh, Brazil Argentina Chile uh, those are, are hands down the most passionate crazy uh, vocal outgoing audiences you can ever play for uh, you know, also down in, in Mexico City is another great one. And then there's some places throughout Europe that are also like that. Uh, the Italian fans could be like that at times, and the German fans could be like that at times. Uh, to me, those are my favorite type of audiences. I like that interaction. I like that energy. I thrive off of it on stage. Um, to be honest, no disrespect to Japan whatsoever. I mean, I love playing there as well, but they're very polite and quiet and you could hear a pin drop during the performance. And I guess there's something to be said for that. When you have those dynamic moments in the show, uh, that's nice to have an audience like that. But at the end of the day, I ultimately love, you know, the energy. Uh, and then when, you know, when you have the, the, uh, the driving songs and the heavy songs and the, the energetic songs, I, I like having that energy back from the audience. So you were talking about the Spielberg movie. What have you seen lately? What, you got any movie suggestions? What have you seen in the last six months? Has anything knocked your socks off? Because I'm sure you probably go to movies because you love the entertainment medium. Yeah, nothing's knocked my socks off, to be honest. I mean, we talked earlier about all the TV and the great, great, great TV that's out there. And to me, that, you know, I think TV uh, is better than film these days. You know, the only two things I've seen so far this year that uh, were really well made was the, the Christopher Nolan film, Dunkirk, and the Darren Aronofsky film, Mother. Uh, those are pretty much the two best things I've seen so far this year. I'm, I'm waiting to get to the theater to see uh, Villeneuve's uh, Blade Runner. Uh, that's the one that I'm most looking forward to next. And then, of course, Star Wars is coming, and a new P.T. Anderson is coming. Um, you know, there's a lot of great stuff in the pipeline for December, but to be honest, uh, you know, film can't even compete with, with TV these days. 
Are you a big Star Wars guy? Have you always been a big Star Wars guy? Or are you one of the ones in the middle of the road? Or yeah. Are you one of, you're the, one of the crazy? No, I'm, I'm big. Well, I'm not, I'm not like one of those Star Wars fanatics where my house is filled, filled with <laughs> little, uh, you know, figures and things like that. So I, I, I think I'm more of a Star Wars fanatic just from a filmmaker's, film fan point of view. I mean, I, I love those films and I, and, and I really admire and respect them, but that's probably the extent of it. I, I've never gone to a Star Wars convention or anything like that, but I definitely love and admire the films. If you like sci-fi, I gotta suggest, I'm not a big sci-fi fan, I'll be honest, but I started watching the Orwell. Have you seen the Orwell? No. It's on Fox. It's by Seth MacFarlane. So everyone thinks it's a, uh, it's a sitcom, but it's not. It's an hour. And I know people who love Star Trek and all these movies, these, TV shows, and they say it's just as good. You might want to check that out if you like sci-fi, because it's got his mm. little tweaky, you know, that off-centered humor, but it doesn't go around the whole script. My favorite sci-fi, hands down, is Black Mirror on Netflix. Uh, it's absolutely brilliant. Absolutely love every single one of those episodes. Uh, it's very much like Twilight Zone for the new millennium, and that, that's my favorite sci-fi, hands down. Now, through your career, have you met any actors? Have you found out any actors are fans of yours? And have you gotten to meet them and even talk to them? Or is there anyone that has gone out of their way to meet you? I, it's been very disappointing that, that, that there's been so few, to be honest with you. You know, I, I would kill to meet Paul Thomas Anderson or, or Quentin Tarantino. Or I've been dying to, like, somehow infiltrate the Walking Dead world and get invited to Talking Dead and... You know, and it's amazing how little uh, uh, kind of crossover I've had, uh, you know, given the, the film fanatic I am. There's been a, a, a couple of occasional cases where, like, you know, somebody is a drummer and then they'll reach out to me. You know, like Mike, Michael Chiklis, who was, uh, you know, he was uh, on The Shield and he does a lot of stuff now with, you know, I think he's... Uh, who is he in, in the Avengers? I, see, I'm not a, a comic book fan at all. But anyway, he's an example where he's he's plays drums, and then he reached out to me on Twitter, and we kind of connected that way. So that you know, when that happens, it's really cool for me uh, because I'm such a fan. But I get jealous. Like I'm friends with like Chris Jericho or, or Scott Ian from Anthrax, and those guys have been on Talking Dead, and you know they're down with all the Game of Thrones people, and they're you know. Going, you know, going to dinner at Quentin Tarantino's house or Eli Roth's house. I've sadly not have had many interactions or crossovers. So, so <laughs> I'm putting it out. I love film and TV. You're a big Walking. There's got to be some people out there that would like my music. You're a big Walking Dead fan. Big time, yeah. Okay, now are you all caught up on it? I know this new season's starting soon. Are you all? Yeah, caught? of course. I, I actually just went to the Comic Con panel. Uh, at Madison Square Garden a few days ago. Okay, well, last uh, last season, I think he's on again this season, I think there's a guy named, who plays, there's a character named Roger. He's got a beard. He's, uh, his, the actor is Xander. He's, uh, he's got a big okay. part. Uh, what I'm going to do times, I'm going to introduce you two guys on Twitter. And I'm going to say, Excellent. talk to talk to him, talk you guys talk, because he's a big music fan. He's worked with Joe Strummer in the movies. He's a huge music guy. And he's, he's you know, he's 60. He's, you would know him. He's been around forever. He was in Sid and Nancy. But I'm going to, I'm going to, and I'm going to introduce you also to uh, Rosemary Rodriguez, who directs some episodes. So we're going to get this connection wow. going. I'm going I'm to tweet later. I mean, I've, I've even had, fan, uh, like, fans start a whole Twitter campaign 
to Talking Dead and to Chris Hardwick and to, to AMC to try to get me on, but they've never bit. You know, I, I, every once in a while I'll tweet about a show, you know, like, and I'll have somebody, you know, if I'm writing about Twin Peaks, I'll have like Kyle McLaughlin or Ray Wise or, or uh, Mark Frost, you know, retweet or like something. And that to me is like, I get so excited about right. that. I mean, I've met everybody from Paul McCartney to Ringo Starr to Roger Waters to Pete Townsend, but it's a little different because they're in my same field of work, you know, so wh- every once in a while when I get somebody in movie and TV to acknowledge me or notice me, that, that to me is so exciting as a fan. Well, well I'm going to do that when I, when we get done. I'm going to sit there, I'm going to tweet Xander Berkeley. I can't think of his name. He's the guy who's sort of like a, uh, he's got a beard. He was in last season. He's sort of like a cult leader. He's very, like, this real... Is he one of the saviors? Is he one I of think he's one of the guy? saviors. He's, he's, he's on, like, uh, the whole season. I'll, you'll know him when you, I'll, I'll tweet, I'll tweet you guys, and I'll introduce you guys. Okay. I'll say, you guys got to meet each other. He loves your show. Xander, you're a music fan. Xander will always pop up on my Facebook feed once in a while and be like, you know, we were talking awesome. about different music. But so anyway, so, okay, so the the website is Sons of Apollo. And, and when does that album come out? Comes out next Friday, uh, October 20th. And then the tour, do you have an opening date yet or you're not sure? Yeah, we actually kick off on Yes's Cruise to the Edge, uh, February Second or third, I think, and it's five a five day cruise on, uh, and that will be our debut. And then from there, we once we dock, we hit the ground running. We'll be out all 2018. Okay, and your Twitter is Sons of Apollo One, and Facebook Sons of Apollo One as well. And for, is that your what's your personal Twitter? That's the band. My my personal stuff is all Mike Port. It's at Mike Port. Yeah. Okay, so we're gonna get so people follow yeah. the band, follow him on Twitter. I want to thank you for taking time. This is good. You know, I'm glad we got to talk a little music, but I'm glad we got to talk to some TV because uh, usually I interview people about their career the whole time. But but you know, when you interview actors, a lot of times you don't really talk about TV because they're in TV. But it's great to see someone who right. uh, who loves TV and loves music. So people. Follow Mike on Twitter. Follow the Sons of Apollo one. Go to the website, sonsofapollo.com. I believe your website is MikePortnight.com. People, go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 650 episodes up there. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. And follow me on Twitter. That's at coopertalk. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. This has been presented by Walk My Mind. You guys have a great night.